So today the readings from Titus 1 verses 5 to 16 found on page 1813 of the church bibles. Starting from verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, or not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in faith and will not pay attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciousness are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Thanks, Jazz, and good morning again. Um, turns out on the day where we're looking at the Bible and what it has to say about church leadership, uh, we've heard about another church leader coming to join us at Tonsley next year. Um, and just for a moment, as I get started, I thought I'd just uh, personally add just how much I'm looking forward to Matt and the Lehman family joining us at Tonsley next year. Um, I love working with Matt, and we've been talking and praying and thinking for years about how we might get a night church off the ground here at Tonsley. Um, and like, we haven't really got a clear pathway, and uh, yeah, with lots of things still to work out. Uh, but I'm looking forward a lot to having Matt uh, throwing himself, his experience, his energy, and his, his great heart for the gospel uh, into trying to work out how do we uh, get a, a gathering off the ground that'll be a great thing for the region, uh, especially for the youth and young adults who live in this area. As uh, Matt and I have talked about these things, uh, as, as Sarah said, um, yeah, as far as we can tell, Matt's involvement will basically be what it uh, already is here at morning uh, at our morning gathering, uh, which is not that much uh, week to week. Uh, Matt already preaches here uh, from time to time, and that will continue. Uh, and Matt will be involved a bit more in the background. Uh, I already work pretty closely with Matt during the week, um, but uh, yeah, I've always found him a great source of wisdom and encouragement, uh, and I draw a lot of insights from him. Um, but with Matt's other network responsibilities, uh, and especially as he turns his attention more and more to the evenings, uh, yeah, he won't. Uh, yeah, he'll often be away from the morning gathering as as next year, as he already is this year. So, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. And a short summary for me, I suppose, is uh, it'll be basically business as usual uh, from from here on in for the morning. Uh, quick. On the flip side, uh, for those who are one day thinking about saying goodbye to the morning gathering and uh, starting off a, an evening gathering, um, I'm still hoping to be one of the pastors. We'll have a little bit to do with you guys uh, in the future as well. All right. Well. Um, yeah, uh, 
but if I were to say about the many things we'd love to be doing and the vision we have for that, and we'll kind of um, uh, yeah be doing more of that in the coming weeks. Uh, but uh, far more important than how we organise ourselves as a church, and far more important than who's doing what and when and how, uh, far more important than that is uh, to come uh, to God's word and have Him set the agenda for the, the sort of church we ought to be, uh, and we need to be keep uh, being shaped by His word. And so uh, it'd be great to keep Titus chapter 1 open, because uh, in this part of, the, um, of Paul's letter to Titus we read about, uh, the focus is really on the kind of leaders uh, Titus should be seeking to appoint in the churches in Crete, uh, beautiful Mediterranean islands we uh, heard a bit about last week. Um, before we dive into the detail, I thought I want to start by making the case of why this passage really matters. Um, some of you might be uh, thinking this passage is about leaders in the church, and you know I'm not one of them, so this isn't for me. Um, but I want to make the case it really is a passage for all of us to, uh, to read and consider carefully. Uh, if you're here last week, uh, you have heard, uh, as Paul starts this letter, um, God's plan for the world is to have healthy churches in every place. Uh, that's God's plan for changing the world, healthy churches in every place. Uh, in verse 5 uh, there, we see that... Uh, Crucially, a big part of straightening out and uh, organising things uh, to make that happen is to have leaders appointed in Crete. So if we're a church, uh, if we're part of a church, like, uh, like many of us are, uh, we are part of God's plans to change the world. And so we should care about the details of how he plans to do that. Uh, alongside that, last week, as I took us to the very end of the letter, and you might just like to flick there uh, now, uh, just in case you missed this, chapter 3, verse 15, the very end, uh, Paul uh, says, everyone with me sends you greetings. That is, he's saying that to Titus in the singular. Uh, not surprising, he's saying, you know, hello to Titus. Uh, it's a letter to him. But the very, very last thing Paul says in this letter, he goes on, he says, grace be with you all. Uh, like all of Paul's letters, uh, he's intending this is read by everyone in all the churches, not just the Titus, it's for everyone to read. Uh, Paul wants the whole church to know what kind of leaders, uh, um, and what, sorry, to know what leaders it should be like. Perhaps the most obvious reason uh, we should care about this topic is because God very clearly cares about his church. Uh, back in chapter 1 there, in verse 7, I want to point out something that's uh, always helpful to be reminded of. Um, a church is not just a collection of lovely people. Uh, we are not a social club. Have a look at verse 7. As Paul's writing there, he talks about an overseer. Uh, since an overseer manages, manages what? He doesn't say a church. He says, since an overseer manages God's household. A church is God's household. Like, that means how precious is a church to God? It's his very own household made up of precious children that he sent his son to die for. So this topic of church leadership is, uh, if we think it's not important to God, uh, we haven't understood what church is. And so we can't afford to be thoughtless or blasé about God's church. Um, The other reason this is uh, important at a, I guess, more personal level for all of us, uh, the reality is we need this framework that Paul gives uh, for appointing leaders. Uh, In large part, we need to know what God asks of those who lead us. It's healthy and good for a church to know what their pastors, what their leaders are supposed to be like. On top of that, this passage isn't just about the main pastor of the church. Um, Have a look. Back in verse 5, Paul tells Titus to appoint not an elder. He says, appoint elders, plural, more than one. Appoint elders in every town. That is, there's multiple people involved in leadership at each church. 
And think again, like Crete has lots of towns, and it's not a hugely bustling island. There's people on it, but it's not overflowing with people. So each town, if you think about the kind of church was most likely what it would look like, uh, the gatherings on Crete were probably most like our growth groups, maybe a dozen people meeting in a home. Uh, Each small group of believers doesn't have one elder, but a number of elders, a number of people leading that group. You might have also noticed uh, Paul used the word elder and then also the word overseer, uh, sort of interchangeably. He's talking about the same kind of people. Um, Other translations, if you have uh, different translations in front of you, you might see words like presbyter or uh, bishop. Um, That's where the word bishop uh, sort of comes from. Um, But if you're thinking of the kind of bishop like you might have come across in our day, big hats and uh, gigantic stick and long flowing robe, like they've just walked out of the set of Harry Potter or they're about to play Dungeons and Dragons or whatever, um, that's not what Paul is telling Titus to do. He's not saying, oh, don't forget to give them a big hat. Uh, He's not interested in that kind of bishop. Um, Elder, overseer, we're not supposed to be distracted by the titles. It's not titles. He's describing a role, uh, what someone is to be like. So as Paul is talking about people who take responsibility for leading and serving other Christians, that's what he's on about here. Uh, That, of course, includes people like me, especially people like me in my role as a pastor. Also, uh, if you're involved in leading others. If you're a leader of a growth group, if you're involved in leading our kids' ministry, if you're involved in our youth ministry, uh, even if you're doing that occasionally, you are the kind of person Paul is talking about here. Leaders. A final thought on why I think this matters, it's about those, uh, why I think this matters, especially for those who might be here who aren't committed followers of Jesus, uh, maybe belonging to a church not something you're familiar with or might be relatively new to you. Um, So thank you so much if that's you for being with us this morning. It's great encouragement you're here. Um, I think a passage like this is important for everyone uh, to help understand what the Bible says a church should be like. Uh, Churches can go weird in all kinds of ways, and we're flawed in all kinds of ways. Uh, What's important is to know how God holds its leaders to account. Uh, Whatever else you may know about churches, I hope you'll recognise in this passage, uh, it's entirely unique, I think, in our world uh, to see uh, a community uh, with this kind of requirement for its leaders. I think a church led like this is precious and it's very unique and it's the kind of community our world needs more of. And for all the flaws every church has, uh, if you look from the outside looking in, I hope you'll get to see what every church should be like, uh, even though we will fail uh, to get there. Uh, And you'll see it's a good thing to belong to a church if leaders are committed to being like Paul describes here. Now, in your leaflets, I often give a sermon outline and I've given just a very basic summary of what Paul's saying here about what a leader in a church should be like. Uh, Here's a summary. Leaders should have a firm grip on the Word, and the Word should have a firm grip on them. Leaders should have a firm grip on the Word, and the Word should have a firm grip on them. And so verses 5 to 8, Paul focuses focuses first on the life of the leader, and has the Word taken a grip on them and their life. Uh, He lists the qualities here, and we realise, well, um, someone can actually only be like this if they have genuinely experienced God's grace. And so part of the criteria for Titus in selecting leaders is is kind of checking, really, is there sufficient evidence in the life of this person? Are they holding firm to Jesus? Are they being renewed by his grace? Are they seeking uh, his forgiveness? That is, have they been impacted by the gospel? They need a change and that Jesus can help them change. Have a look, verse 6. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Now, back on uh, the word blameless for a second, Um, it can't mean sinless, can it? It can't mean perfect, otherwise, who would be suitable to lead? Not even Titus, I guess, would be suitable uh, and fitting that criteria. 
Um, the word for blameless here it usually means things like uh, not being accused of things and not being blamed for things in public. Um, that is, Paul's talking about their public reputation. Are they known to be people of integrity uh, in the public eye or do they have a reputation for being mixed up in scandal, disgrace, chaos? Um, Paul gives the reasons for that in verse 7. Leaders have a management role in God's household. That is, they can't bring scandal from their lives uh, into a sacred household. It's not fitting. Now here, um, Paul's assuming that generally on Crete, uh, a leader will have wife and children. That's uh, just an assumption there, I suppose. But I just want to, um, I think it's worth saying, this doesn't disqualify people uh, who are single or without children from leadership. Um, that's not at all what Paul is saying here. They don't have to be married before they can lead. Um, what this does mean, though, is that leaders of God's people do need to have integrity. Uh, they do need faithfulness in all areas of sex uh, and faithfulness within their marriage, or if they're single, uh, committing to being chaste. Now, it's worth thinking carefully as well about uh, what it means for children to be believers and also to not be wild and disobedient. Um, firstly, on children being believers, uh, no matter how good and no matter how godly parents may be and no matter how wisely, how prayerfully and they instruct and disciple their children, um, as those children grow up, there are no guarantees they will remain believers. Uh, that's not a guarantee because that's actually God's work uh, to do that ultimately. So it seems Paul's talking more about children who are younger uh, and are under the leadership and influence of their parents. I want to say this is probably a verse we should probably be careful not to over-apply uh, because, after all, depending on your perspective, um, wild and disobedient children is a description of, well, every child, isn't it? If you, uh, uh, yeah. And so I don't think it's uh, too fair on kids to demand that they're perfectly behaved because, you know, they're kids. Uh, and after all, what does good behaviour look like? Um, that'll be very different depending on your own upbringing and culture and all that sort of thing. So I want to be careful about over-applying this one. Um, different children also will express their faith in different ways at age, uh, different ages. Um, so I guess I'm saying this is not a simple thing we want to draw very concrete rules from. However, I think the principle we should be paying careful attention to is uh, a church leader's first congregation is their family, isn't it? That's always their family. If they haven't encouraged, if they haven't corrected their children, if they haven't nurtured the spiritual welfare of the people they spend the most time with and have the most influence with, well, it's right to be concerned that they also won't be capable of doing that with others. So it's a good question to be asking. Uh, in verse 7, uh, Paul instructs uh, that an overseer must be blameless, that same word again, that is having the right reputation and noticeable to others uh, in, the, um, in these following ways as well. So he gives a bit of a list here. Uh, the leader is to not be overbearing, you know, not being a bully, not being arrogant. Uh, they need to have a bigger concern for others than themselves. Uh, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent. Now, that clearly involves physical violence, and as much as it might make a kid's talk more interesting to you know, karate chop a puppet that's being rude, um, yes, probably not a good idea. Um, but violence here, I think, is also ruling out um, striking others verbally. It's not just a physical violence in view. It's, it's a character issue. Uh, he goes on, not pursuing dishonest gain. Again, that's going to include things like, you know, obviously, getting money out of people, uh, but probably also broader. That is, they're not using their leadership to wrongly accumulate uh, influence or social standing. Now, there's the negatives to avoid. Uh, how about the positives? Uh, by the way, Paul's not giving an ex exhaustive list here, is he? Uh, it's not like all the things you want to check off. These are just a very short summary. But even still, uh, it's more than enough for all of us to take pause, 
especially those of us who have leadership roles, all those who are aspiring to take on more responsibility for others, are we growing in these areas? Are these areas perhaps some that need serious attention? Uh, do we need to have a re- renewed appeal to God's grace uh, to, to grow us and to go to work in some of these areas? These are good things for us to come back to and reflect on. Um, verse 8, here are the positives. Uh, he, rather, he must be hospitable. Um, that's not about how well someone can cook, thankfully in my case. Um, that's a good thing. Uh, it's about being um, open to others, uh, welcoming people into their lives, open to the outsider especially. He goes on, they must be one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. Now, because this is God's household, leaders can't be just agents of chaos uh, whose lives are in disarray because they act on a whim all the time. Um, there's a level of moderation in their lives. That's kind of uh, yeah, appropriate. So if we're trying to lead and serve others to help others grow in their understanding of the gospel, uh, leaders need to be growing themselves. It's key, isn't it? Uh, and to be able to grow, you need to be able to lead yourself in the right direction. Having some sort of mastery over yourself, that takes self-control, that takes discipline. It's true both in public and in private. For instance, when it comes to using the internet, social media, uh, the requirement is to be self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. As we take this uh, big list all together, I think all of us, uh, myself very much included, feel we don't measure up. Uh, the leader here is describing is someone who's not just born with a perfect personality, uh, that person doesn't exist, uh, and he's not talking about someone who's perfected all of these things either. Remember, the leader he's describing is someone who has clearly encountered God's grace to them and it's changed them. God's grace has changed everything about them and is continuing to change them from the inside out. Paul already pointed this out back in verse 1 of this chapter. We looked at this last week. Paul's work as an apostle through preaching the gospel, his work, if you're looking back at verses 1 to 4 there, Paul's work furthers the faith of the elect and their knowledge of the truth Uh, And that truth leads to godliness. He's asking the question here, has the truth of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, has it gone to work in the life of the person you're looking at? See, a leader, leader, I think, can fake good behaviour. I think leaders can cover up serious character flaws for a while. Uh, But eventually, it's only those who know that God's grace uh, means complete forgiveness of sins that will stand. Someone who knows that God's grace means even they... Sinners that they are, even they, quick-tempered, overbearing, given to drunkenness, whatever it may be, God has forgiven. Uh, God has forgiven them for what they were, and God is transforming them, leading them in the knowledge of the truth to godly living. Uh, back in chapter, uh, sorry, over in chapter two, in verse eleven, we looked at this last week, and my guess is we'll look at this verse pretty much every week in our Titus series. I think this is the key uh, to the, path, the whole book. It's up on the screen here. I think this is chapter two, verse eleven. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It, that's God's grace, God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. God's grace, his kindness, his favour to us, when we know what God's grace is and we have a grasp on it, it changes us, it trains us actually in the way we live. And so the leaders of God's people have to have had their lives changed, gripped by the grace of God, that's one side of the coin. Uh, and from verse 9, Paul changes the focus to the other side of the coin. Uh, the leaders need to hold firmly to the word of God, to cling uh, to the truth. So verse 9, if you have a look, uh, the, the, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, 
so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Just pause for a second. Notice what Paul uh, hasn't said about leaders in the church. He said nothing about how effective they are with strategy or long-term visionary leadership. He hasn't even said they need to be engaging preachers. They don't need to be great communicators with you know, big sparkling personalities or profoundly insightful. They don't need to know all the answers. He's just said they need to hold firmly to God's word as it has been taught. Because it's the truth that actually transforms us. Paul tells us uh, the reason this is important uh, in the second half of verse 9 there. A leader needs to hold firmly to the word, not just for their own sakes and for their own lives being transformed, that's true, but they do that so he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Now, word, just a bit of a word association thing. When you hear the words sound doctrine, uh, what comes to mind for you? you know, big old dusty books, uh, long-winded preachers using very complicated words. Or do you think what Paul's talking about here? Encouragement. Sound doctrine is for encouragement. Actually, the word here could also be comforted. Sound doctrine that is comforting. Now, he's clearly not telling leaders uh, to bust out a theology lecture every time someone is struggling. He is telling leaders the thing that matters most when life is a complete mess is the truth. It's the truth about God and his goodness. Uh, the truth that God is in control. The truth that God loves you, no matter what's happening in your life. Are you concerned about your sin disqualifying you from eternal life? Well, sound doctrine says the blood of Christ is sufficient. His grace is enough. Do you feel inadequate as a Christian? Uh, sound doctrine says you're precious to God, you're valuable to him, no matter what you can or can't do. Uh, last year, some of you remember Paul and Sue Harrington came to visit us here. Paul is the pastor who oversees the Trinity Network, and uh, Sue's his wife. Uh, some of you remember Sue shared a bit about when she was first diagnosed with cancer a few years back. Uh, the thing that Sue was really thankful for was years of good Bible teaching. She said when, when this, the diagnosis came, the cancer diagnosis didn't spin her out because she was comforted in a very difficult time by sound doctrine. She understood who God is what the Bible teaches about suffering and hardship and the hope of the gospel. So sound, sound doctrine doesn't need to be complicated. It's uh, not about being uh, technically accurate so much as it is about being life-changing. And especially in the role people like me have, uh, my job in preaching is it's not to entertain you. Um, it's not to be thought-provoking. It's not to be intellectually stimulating. Uh, all those things are fine, but they don't actually really matter that much. Uh, my job is to hold firmly to the truth myself personally so I can encourage you in it as well. The truth, uh, not great motivational speaking, will matter the most in your life. As a side note, uh, my job, uh, my, sorry, my goal is not to be boring while I do that. I'd like to be engaging all those things. I'd like it to make it as easy as possible as I can for you to hear the truth and to listen. But I do need to be careful that as I'm trying to be engaging, that doesn't come at the expense of uh, sound doctrine. Another reason here that leaders need to hold firmly to the word of God is the end of verse 9. It's to refute those who oppose sound doctrine. And actually, for the rest of the chapter, that's where Paul's focus goes to. A leader of God's people has to be ready to stand up to the truth and fight for it if need be. And I don't know if you notice this, but Paul here is not talking about people outside of the church with different opinions and different ideas. And from verse 10 onwards, he's making it very clear that on Crete, there are many people who are opposing sound doctrine 
in the church. Uh, that's the issue here. Verse 10 says they are rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception. The thing is, these people that Paul goes on to describe, it, it seems like they would actually sound quite spiritual. They would sound very wise, very charming, and very persuasive, but deadly wrong. These people don't just have a harmless, different opinion about who God is and how to please God. Paul says, verse 11, they must be silenced because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Now, unfortunately, it'd be interesting to find out exactly what these people were saying, but Paul doesn't really tell us. He doesn't give us too many details here. Um, Verse 10, we're just told they are of the circumcision group. Not a really cool gang name, is it? Um, Just tells us they're Jewish. Uh, That's the thing we need to know. Uh, And verse 14, their teaching involves myths and merely human commands. If you want to go sideways from sound doctrine, uh, just ignore what God says and come with your own ideas. Verse 15... Uh, They seem to have a concern for purity. Uh, Verse 15 gives us that sort of sense, that's what's going on. So perhaps these people are arguing about what God should or shouldn't eat or what they should wear or what they shouldn't wear or who they should mix with. We don't know. It seems to be that sort of thing. Whatever it is that they're teaching, it's dangerous. Because adding or distorting to God's message of truth uh, about the the grace of God uh, is dangerous. Uh, Sound doctrine tells us what makes us pure and what makes us acceptable to God. It's only the blood of Christ that makes us pure. It's not what we do. It's not what we eat, not what we wear, not how many good things we do for other people. That doesn't count. None of it makes a scrap of difference in how God sees us, how pure we are or how righteous we are in his eyes. It's only by God's grace to us in Jesus that we are made pure when we turn to him. And see, if we seek to make ourselves acceptable to God, we're basically saying, actually, his grace, I don't need it. It's not good enough for me. If we're trying to make ourselves acceptable, it doesn't work. Have a look at verse 15. I think this sounds sort of back to front at first. Uh, To the pure, all things are pure. Now, you just think about that. It doesn't actually make sense. Like when you think about a glass of pure water, it's pure. As soon as anything else enters that glass of pure water, by definition, it's no longer pure, isn't it? To the pure, it's not pure anymore. But when we trust in the blood of Christ for our salvation, uh, the grace of God genuinely makes us pure in God's eyes. Genuinely. We are pure. The food we eat doesn't tarnish it. doesn't change that. Because we are already pure in Christ. These people, as verse 15 continues, uh, to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. That is, unless God, by his grace, purifies us, unless we turn to him for that, No matter how hard we try, no matter what we do, nothing we do will make us pure to God. And those who teach we can make ourselves pure or add to God's grace and earn his approval, well, Paul is brutal about them, isn't he? Like in verse 12, he quotes the Cretan philosopher about how the Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. And Paul in verse 13 is like, yeah, they are. It's it's a pretty brutal takedown. These people who are presenting as purists, as spiritual people, they're no doubt very devout. Paul's saying they are just as corrupt as everyone else on Crete. Have a look at the end of verse 15. In fact, both their minds and consciousness are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for anything good. I think it's safe to say Paul's not a big fan of their work. Now, if we're thinking, though, this, is, this may be a bit harsh, uh, Paul's overreacting here. 
Like, after all, what is the big problem of just getting a doctrine a little bit off? Can't we just have a bit of a difference in um, opinion about how these things should be? And again, we don't really know all the details, but have a look at the end of verse 14, what Paul's assessment is all about here. The end of verse 14, they are those who reject the truth. They are those who reject the truth. They're rejecting the truth about the grace of God that leads to eternal life. They're teaching others to, to reject God's grace that leads to eternal life. And so to reject that truth is to reject God's offer of eternal life, which is a pathway to hell. There is nothing more dangerous than rejecting sound doctrine. And so Paul tells Titus to make sure leaders are equipped to rebuke these people sharply, uh, verse 13. Rebuke them sharply, not just you know, to have a fight, rebuke them sharply so they will be sound in the faith. As harsh as he is about them, Paul thinks even they can be transformed by God's grace. Because the good news is, anyone can be transformed by God's grace. When you think about uh, the two halves of this chapter, the first half, the second half, um, you think at the first half, what Titus should be looking for in leaders to a point. Then you read the second half of the chapter, and the, the quote about Cretans just being the worst of all people, um, you wonder, how is Titus on Crete going to find anyone to lead a church? doesn't sound that likely, does it? If Cretans are all like this, how is he going to find anyone with that kind of, uh, those sorts of qualities that are needed? Well, it seems Paul's very confident. Titus will find people because even Cretans were transformed by the truth of God's grace. It's only the grace of God that can transform, and it does. It genuinely transforms lives. Now, in our day, uh, there are no shortage of church leaders around who have departed from the truth. There are many who haven't held firmly to sound doctrine, and they are putting people in great danger. Uh, for instance, I think there's a very bland and very upsetting version of Christianity all around Australia uh, that basically teaches, just be a nice person. Uh, here's a nice poem I found on the internet about being a nice person. Let's talk about that for a while. There's never a mention of sin, never a mention of God's just wrath at our sin, uh, or the need for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. But these are not trivial things. And just as Paul is teaching us here, we should, all of us, be really concerned about good, sound doctrine, especially for those who lead. Now, I've printed on your outline uh, in the leaflets there, hopefully a memorable line, something that sticks with me. Uh, bad theology always ends badly. A bad theology always ends badly. Uh, many of you will have already seen this in your life. Faith and lives, uh, lives that are just shipwrecked because of a twisted understanding of who God is, uh, a misunderstanding of his grace. Bad doctrine. Bad theology. It always ends badly in real ways. But sound doctrine... Uh, held firmly by God's leaders, uh, by God's church, uh, is essential for our world. And that's why, as a church, we would love everyone here uh, to support the Bible College of South Australia. Uh, they play a crucial role in helping raise uh, people to lead uh, in churches and ministries. The Bible College of South Australia are about teaching carefully and helping people think deeply about the Word of God so they can hold firmly for a lifetime and encourage others in it. You can sign up online to be a supporter of the college or just get their prayer updates. Some of you might even to enrol and uh, learn more about uh, the doctrines you want to be holding dearly onto. It's also why, as a church, we encourage everyone to support the Purdy family with CMS. Um, they've gone out to Chile uh, to train pastors in South America. Uh, they're working and raising up leaders who hold firmly to the word of truth. Now, the impact that, that godly leaders with sound doctrine are having in South America is astounding. It's incredible what they're up to. It's so vital. See, the best way to change our world and to push back on uh, bad doctrine, 
that destroys, the best way to do that is to do what we can as we're able to see that many more leaders in God's church are raised up. They're gripped by God's word of grace and keep gripping onto it firmly. Uh, Would you join me as I pray? Our Lord God, we thank you for the power uh, that your grace has to save us and to transform us. Uh, For all of us, especially those who have responsibilities for other believers and encouraging and leading others, um, and those who are thinking about leading or those you are raising up to lead, please keep each one of us growing in the way that your word has marked our lives. Please keep each one of us here gripping firmly to your trustworthy word, encouraging others by it. And so please help us be a church here who values and cares about all the things you care about. So help us each do our part to see your name being great, to see lives change throughout our world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.